Good morning. Our passage today is from Philippians 2, verses 3 through 13. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And, being found in, the, in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but much but now much more in my absence. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Mm-hmm. This is the word of the Lord. The Lord be with you. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Any English majors in here? If so, and you don't know who said that, you're in big trouble. I'm just telling you. (laughs) When the great English poet John Milton composed those words in the middle of the 17th century, He was imagining the opening monologue of Satan, first rousing himself in the sulfurous inferno after his failed rebellion against God. Having been cast forever out of heaven, the fallen angel vows to make the best of it, or the worst of it. Of the 10,000 plus lines of Milton's epic poem, Paradise Lost, Many argue that this line is the best. Many scholars argue this is the best line in the poem. Because rebellion resonates very darkly with the human spirit. Unapologetic self-awareness is beguiling. But make no mistake, every pride will one day kneel. Narcissism isn't the way back to the garden. Today is the fourth and final sermon in a series that we've been addressing the question, why should Christians serve? It's my understanding that question arose from a survey of the congregation a few months ago. You may have participated. I think I did too. I forget. But I do know this. It's a fair question. 
Because we frequently hear, not only in sermons here but elsewhere, that Christians should serve God and others. Why? That's a fair question. So far, we've heard three responses. We've heard that Christians should serve because it is the way of love. God has served us through his love and grace. Thus, we should serve others. We should serve because it is a way of witnessing to God's new creation, witnessing to the world that there's something better than every man for himself. And Christians should serve because it is a way of belonging. That was last Sunday. It is a way of creating community and also entering into community with those whom you serve and also with those with whom you serve. So those are three very worthy responses to the question, why should Christians serve? But I think today, God might be giving us the ultimate answer to the question. Let's listen. The philosopher Socrates, writing in the 5th century BCE, is quoted as having said, know thyself. Well, that advice wasn't original to Socrates. It was actually inscribed over the door of the temple at Delphi, the temple of Apollo at Delphi, and maybe even preceded that. But Socrates is famous for having said that. It's had remarkable resonance through the centuries. Probably the most elegantly phrased version of that motto comes out of the mouth of Polonius, a character in the first act of William Shakespeare's play, Hamlet. This is not English class. Hold on. Polonius says he's, he's sending his son off to university, and he's just one of these old father types who's just droning on and on with advice. Blah, 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 blah. Do this. Take care of your money. Watch yourself. You know, don't, don't go run around with loose women. And he says, this above all, this is his last piece of advice, to thine own self be true. And it must follow as the night, the day, thou canst not then be false to any man. Beautiful. Know thyself, to thyself be true. The irony in the case of Polonius is that he is a stifling bore and a venal hypocrite whose wicked ways devolve to the destruction and death of virtually everyone, including himself. But that's a footnote. <laughs> Nevertheless... Regardless of who said it, we have taken these words to heart. Everywhere today, you don't hear people saying, know thyself. Nobody talks like that except me. But you do hear people saying, get in touch with yourself. Don't you? Don't you hear people saying, be true to yourself? Or words to that effect? Sure. Who am I really? I mean, that's a, that is a, a constant concern. I mean, seriously, don't even, don't even go online looking for it. You'll be inundated. You know, and more to the point, how can I become my authentic self? That's another phrasing of the same thing Socrates said, the oracle at Delphi said, Polonius said. How can I know who I am? And then when I know who I am, how can I be true to that? Well, consider these insights that I found online in response to that. Now, these are direct quotes. I didn't, I'm not citing sources, but if you want to know who said these things or who wrote them, you ask me because I've got the sources. You cannot be authentic if you don't believe in your ability to shape your life the way you want. When you're authentic, you put yourself in places and situations that you love and meet people that you like. I might reverse that, love and like, but whatever. 
To live with authenticity, you need to say no to things and people that are not serving you. Now, look at that. Isn't that just another way of saying another old tried and true expression, if it feels good, do it? I mean, isn't that what that is? Ariana Grande sang that. It came out in the 70s with Debbie Boone and Barbara Mandrell and all kinds of other people have sung that song. If it feels good, how can this be wrong if it feels so right? You know, well, is that being true to your authentic self? Do you think that's what people mean? I'm, I'm serious. I'm not trying to be sarcastic. I actually don't know what people mean when they say be true to your authentic self. But who is your authentic self anyway? Well, so I went to the first chapter of the Bible. That's my go-to, beginning the Bible. And in the first chapter of the Bible, we hear at least one answer to that question, who is your authentic self? We hear that God created humankind in his image. But that just kind of highlights the problem. Because the selves that you and I are living and discovering every day are definitely not in the image of God. So how can I be true to a self that I don't even know? I can't even figure it out. Let's look back at the scripture that Chelsea just read a few minutes ago. This is a slightly different translation, but it'll still work. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Now we're answering the question, who is your authentic self? I'll say a little bit more about this whole concept in a minute, but I want to address one specific word first. The word that's translated here, mind, is a Greek word, phrenite. It means not just thinking or thoughts like a package deal of data. It means the state of mind. Let the same state of mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Let the same focus of attention be in you that was in Christ Jesus. You see, Paul wrote these words in a letter to the Christians at Philippi, a Greek city. He was trying to educate them in the faith, but he wasn't just conducting a theology class. He was actually conducting a life course. Paul was trying to get them to understand that when you accept this information about God, this reality of who Jesus is, there ought to be some consequences in behavior and attitude. A life course. The letter goes on in the next scripture. Jesus Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness. The verse goes on, but we'll stop right there. Again, I want to pick on another word, form. So we looked at phronite, meaning state of mind. Here, what does Paul mean by form? This is very confusing for people, and I'm not going to go too deep with it, but hold on. The word form here is actually the Greek word, and again, we're always translating out of Greek in the New Testament. The word form is translated morphe meaning the inward character and the outward expression of that character. So morphe doesn't mean form like the shape of something. It doesn't just mean the blank, two-dimensional appearance of something. You can think of it like this. Fire, flames, are the internal character and outward expression of heat brought to a certain point with a certain kind of substance. Good works are the form of goodness. Good works show forth goodness. That's the way people back in the day would have used the language, show forth. What shows forth? Jesus showed forth. So 
I want to look at that because it's important. Paul isn't saying that Jesus just looked like God or that Jesus just took on the appearance of humankind. That's been an enormous confusion since the day Jesus came to earth. Was he really God? Was he really a human? You know, how does that work? Paul is saying that Jesus existed eternally even before he became human. Now, that's a radically new idea for a lot of people. Jesus existed eternally. He didn't just start way back. He always existed, even before eternity. And so then, Jesus, all that time, possessed the inward character and showed forth the outward expression of who God is. Because he was God. That's what Paul means by being equal with God. Our language really, really pales the concept. Jesus was equal with God. So then, when Jesus becomes incarnate, comes into flesh, we might say, he in meets, <laughs> M-E-A-T, he, he gets into meat, he is incarnate. When Jesus incarnates, he empties himself. What does he empty himself of? Because we sure see him doing some godlike things, like raising people from the dead and feeding 5,000 people. What Jesus empties himself of is not his godhood. He doesn't just stop being God for 30 years or so and then go back to being God after the resurrection. No, Jesus is always God. Now, I can't unpack that completely. But what we can know is that Jesus became incarnate, not as some kind of trick, but for a specific reason. And he says it to his disciples. He says, describing himself, the Son of Man, that's a phrase that Scripture uses. I won't go into the roots of that, but he describes himself that way. The Son of Man came not to be served but to serve. It's like, why are you here? People would say, why why don't you run up to Rome and get rid of the emperors and get them off our back? No, I didn't come for that. I came to serve. So radically different. So radically different. One of the reasons Paul writes the second chapter of Philippians is to explain to people, Jesus is not Augustus Caesar. Jesus isn't Alexander the Great. Jesus isn't like the guys who've come and run the show in the past. Jesus is here to serve. When God made the decision, made the plan of salvation, he knew that incarnation would eventuate in death, death on a cross. That didn't come as a surprise to Jesus. I don't know exactly what Jesus knew and when he knew it, but he came knowing he was going to die and knowing he was going to die for a reason. I love the way that theologian N.T. Wright explained it. Get your, get your imagination going. He says, as you look at the incarnate Son of God dying on the cross, the most powerful thought you should think is this. This, Jesus on the cross, is the true meaning of who God is. This is the God of self-giving love. What a gorgeous expression and how diametrically opposed to Satan's statement, better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. This is the God of self-giving love. Fix that picture in your mind. The servant God. Pilate allowed the sign to be nailed over Jesus' cross, the king of the Jews. And some of the Jews said, take that sign down. And Paul, Pilate said, no, we're leaving it up. Not because Pilate believed Jesus was the king of the Jews. He was just trying to be a jerk. Just underscoring jerkdom. He wasn't wasn't expressing faith. 
the Jews were offended. They wanted it down. Pilate said, no, we'll just, let's just offend everybody. But the sign should more rightly have said, the servant God. What does all this have to do with being true to our authentic selves? Sometimes you think, do pastors just go off on a tangent? No, believe you me, it's all tied together. My parents practiced what you might call the indirect method of child rearing. Some people might call it the mystery method. Now, get the picture. They had six kids. I can't tell you how many times I remember them saying, if you know what's good for you. Now, they never actually told us what was good for us. They just said that, like they thought you would know. And that just like, stop right there, dot, dot, dot. That's, that's it. That's as much as they would say. Because they assumed that we knew what was good for us in childhood days. I sure did. I'm not interested in getting in trouble. But when I look online at what it means to be true to your authentic self, I wonder, do we know what is good for us these days? Is self-centeredness disguised as authenticity? good for us? It's like chasing the wind, like building a house on the sand. Listen to what the Word of God says before you spend any more time wrestling with the question, who am I and how do I become my authentic self? God created each one of us in His image. I'm not telling you this morning all that that means. You've got a lifetime to figure it out. But the second thing we can know is that sin has debased and is continuing to debase that image in pursuit of an illusion. So we have lost ourselves. Who am I? We're lost. But here's the good news. That cross, that was a plan. God's plan to rescue and recover all that is lost, not just individuals, the whole thing. Jesus, the second person of the triune God, became one of us. I, I am astounded by that. That's just, uh, that's just so off the, off the chain. I can't even believe it. Became one of us, like he would be sitting here with us. I, I, I can't even grasp it. There was a day when men and women saw Jesus in the flesh and walked around with him and ate with him and had fun and probably told jokes you know, and look for a nice place to sleep at night. Jesus became one of us to show us the inward character and the outward expression of real, authentic life. And he came to die that you and I might live that. That is the perfect will and plan of God for your good and my good and the good of all the world. So who am I? This is how I answer this question. A child of the Most High God. I hope that's you too. Having been born into that status when we received Christ's sacrifice for us. How can I become my authentic self? By accepting God's invitation to a reconciled relationship with your Creator. It, it's so nourishing to me when I think that God loves my heart. I have a little pillow that a friend made for me for my birthday just a couple, three weeks ago. And it, it's like I had to read it twice to get it. It says, Jesus knows me 
this I love. Isn't that cool? Not like Jesus loves me, this I know, like the little children's song. Jesus knows me. God knows who I am. He knows my default settings. He knows what I'm going to go to every time. He knows the sins that are most attractive and easy for me. He knows the things that I'm never tempted to do. He knows the places I need to be sanded and scoured and peeled away. God knows my heart and he knows your heart and he loves us. And he longs to reveal to each and every one of us at the right time for us his design for who we are. He wants to say to you, this is who I designed you to be. You might not be there yet, probably not, but I can help you get there. And then how can I gain what's truly good for me in this life? So if I'm a child of God and I am my authentic self by virtue of accepting God's invitation, how do I gain what's truly good? This is the answer to the question. By becoming like Christ. By becoming like Christ. That almost sounds like, what? That's ridiculous. I'm not going to become like Christ. But that's real. That, that's, that's authenticity. We don't even know we long for that, but it is the highest good that we can seek and possess. More than salvation, sanctification. It's, it's, a, two, it's a two thing. It's a twofer, as they say. Not just getting a ticket to heaven. Stop stopping at that window. Go on down the window to the parameter. Go on down the window to where they're, they're making the big bets, where sanctification happens. That's what that means. Do, do you know that word, sanctification? I didn't make a slide because I didn't want to insult you, but I'm saying it now syllabically, so that's kind of insulting. But anyway, <laughs> sanctification, okay? <laughs> sanctification means... That we can become like Christ. So, let's look carefully at how that happens. Paul tells the Philippian Christians, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Whoa, that's a lifetime's challenge right there. But in humility, regard others as better than yourselves. I mean, you and I could stop right there at that period and we would have work for the rest of time. Seriously, seriously, think about it. But he says, he repeats it, this is very Jewish, he repeats it in other words, same concept. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Doesn't that sound like the self-giving servant Jesus? He wasn't looking for his own good hanging on the cross. Like, what am I getting out of this? A hard day. And eventually glory from the entire universe. But how can I become like Jesus? Well, let's consider a hypothetical situation. I think these are always helpful. Let's pretend like that you've heard the sermon and you've accepted Jesus' sacrificial death for your salvation and you set out to become like Jesus by, you know, serving others. So you're going to say next Sunday you're going to go to the service fair and you're going to say, I'm going to start working maybe on a Saturday in the outdoor classroom up at Washington Montessori Elementary. You know, I've done that. Perhaps you have too. Or maybe I'm not going to do that. I mean, those aren't my kids. You know, why should I be up there working in a neighborhood I don't know, with people I don't know? I, I don't even like being outside anyway. 
and I have a lot to do this Saturday. And really, why aren't some of those school families coming and volunteering? Are you listening to that? Isn't that what happens to you when you try to be like Jesus? Of course it is. Christians should serve because that's what Jesus did. But more to the point, Christians should serve because serving is the proving ground. The proving ground for being like Jesus. Serving and being like Jesus isn't just fake it till you make it. How can I get past that negative self-talk? How can I get past that negative, like, you know, every time I'm trying to be good, I'm trying to do the right thing, all that comes in, all that arrogance, all that pride, all that downright laziness. Are we defeated before we even start? Is it just you're just trying to pretend to be like Jesus, like putting a big smile on your face and pretending? That's just so wrong in every way. Quit trying to just be nice and act, think that's what Jesus is. Jesus isn't about having good manners. Jesus isn't even about inviting people to church, nice as that might be. Jesus is about crucifying who you are. And here's the second piece of good news for the day. Not only did God have a plan for your salvation, God has a plan to deal with that ugliness inside, those vestiges of the inferno inside. It's not a workaround. It's a work of God. Listen to this. Paul writes to the Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Fear and trembling could be translated utter seriousness, but it's the first part that's troubling. Are, are you telling me, is, is the Bible telling me that I just have to try really hard and grit my teeth and somehow I'll save myself and become like Jesus and then I'll have an authentic life? No, take a deep breath. Paul says, work out your own salvation. He's really just remarking on the fact that he isn't there in Philippi. And he probably never will be again because he's in prison. He's in prison. He'll probably never get back to see those people. So he just says, you're on your own in terms of my help firsthand. But you're not on your own without God. Because the second part of that sentence is, for it is God who is at work in you. God, the Holy Spirit, sent by the Father and the Son, has come into the world to live in and with everyone who says yes to Jesus' redeeming love. See, that's the great unpreached truth. You need that truth. The Holy Spirit is in you. He is here in with us. He is here with us. I'm not trying to be weird. I'm just telling you the fact. Because the Holy Spirit came not just to, you know, be unusual not just to be un invisible, but the Holy Spirit came, get this now, to conceive and birth in new life in everyone who receives Jesus' sacrifice. It was the Holy Spirit who conceived Jesus in Mary. It was the Holy Spirit who conceived life in the universe. Look at Genesis 1-1 and look at the story of Mary's impregnation. What does, she, what does the angel Gabriel say to her? Mary says, well, how's this going to happen? And the angel Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit's going to come on you and the baby's going to be conceived. That's how you get new life in Jesus. You say, thank you, Jesus, I'm willing to get it. And the Holy Spirit says, you got it. That's it, see. But then we're like, okay, well, I got it. What, so what now? Well, I'm telling you. Because the second thing he's doing is he's going to enable you to live the authentic life that he's given you. Not in your own strength. Relax. 
but by the transforming miracle of God. I spent, oh my, probably 45 years just holding my spiritual pulse, you know, trying, do I still have it? Do I still have it? Do I still have it? Am I being a good girl? Are people impressed with how much I'm down at the church doing stuff? You know, blah, blah, blah. That's not it. Our natural minds, my mind, your mind, are crowded with sinful thoughts. They're always tempting us to selfishness, even when we try to have good intentions. But listen to what God says. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. That's the word of God. Ezekiel 36, 26. I will make new the attitude of your mind. That's Romans 12, 2 and Ephesians 4, 23. Over and over and over in Scripture, God says, it's not, I'm just not giving you a ticket to ride here. I'm going to make you new. And the making new means your attitude is going to change. One of these days, you'll start thinking about doing some service, and you'll think, you know, I'm not as negative about this as I used to be. That's the Holy Spirit right there. I'm not, I'm not as arrogant toward other people. Oh, I finally get the whole business about privilege. I, I believe I'm getting that. See, where do you think you get wisdom like that? It's not from Satan. He's busy in hell. It's from the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit to remind you of everything I've taught you. So the Holy Spirit's going to remind you of the Word of God. And He's going to prompt you to do something that is not your natural set. That is the process of sanctification. That is the only way you can become like Christ. That is the only way to live your authentic life. I'm here to tell you that's a possibility. That's a promise of God. I'm also here to tell you this doesn't happen overnight. It will take the rest of your life. But it will be your best life. The best Paul begins his letter to the Philippians with an assurance that I think you and I need to hear. He says, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy. He's in prison, praying with joy, being confident in this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. God started this work, and God's going to keep doing it. He has not left you comfortless. He has not left you alone on the earth trying to say, well, now I'm a Christian, so what? No, now I'm a Christian. The Holy Spirit resides in me. That doesn't make me better than other people. That makes me a work in progress. Listen for the Word of God. Obey the prompting of the Holy Spirit. Don't be surprised when He gives you power you didn't know you had. Because by the power of God, to the glory of God, we serve to be formed into the image of Christ. Amen.